Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So very excited, you know, with our guest today. I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit about building, scaling, financing, and then also doing it in other markets, you know, outside of the U.S., specifically Australia. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Mark Hookey. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alejandro. Great to be here. So originally born in Australia. So tell us about your upbringings growing up there in Australia. I grew up in the countryside in Australia and uh, went, went to university in, in Melbourne and 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 started from there to uh, live my life in various different parts of the of the world. So uh, was involved in a company that took me over to the states to to New York and built teams in lots of different parts of the country, as well as building teams in in Europe and um, and and since then. We haven't stopped. Uh, we've, uh, you know, we, we we spent some time in in Europe, in Spain. We spent some time in China, in Hong Kong, back in the States. So um, I've been building businesses in in lots of parts of the world, and Australia is a very international culture, uh, very multicultural, and uh, I think perhaps that's been helpful. And what about the uh, doing the MBA in the US? I mean, how how, how do you land in in New York City? I was part of a business in which I was building out the U.S. group, and uh, that took me to New York. I had bosses down in Atlanta, and we were building out some great things with insurance companies in in the U.S. around around pricing and and modeling. Uh, that was um, was very interesting, and and I always wanted to spend time in in New York. Got the opportunity to go and do an MBA in in the city while I was there, which was a good uh, good chance to put my head above the clouds and look at what other options there are out there in the world, meet an incredible network of people and, and have some fun after, after a, a long time doing a hard slog. Is that, is that why they typically, because obviously now you find all the education online, you know, would you say that that's really the purpose of going to a program like this for, for the people that you get to meet? Well, yeah, I mean, look, it's each to their own, right? A lot of people have a lot of different reasons for myself. Personally, I already had a commerce degree and, was self-taught in technology and stats and I had an engineering degree and I didn't, I wasn't going to do it to learn the academic content because even back then and even 20 years ago, there were plenty of other ways to read a book and, and learn things pre-Coursera. Uh, but 
you know, I was, I, I was exhausted. I'd, I'd really put in a lot into building a team and building a business. And, you know, I was in my own, the, the business that I was involved in was doing something very niche and very deep in one specific vertical. And so become quite uh, narrow in your worldview and, and sort of have your group of friends and your group of colleagues. And, and I just wanted to take a bit of a break and, and meet people and, and have some fun and, and um, you know, learn a few things, but mostly just network in the context of interesting content. And I was doing it during the financial crisis and there was lots of interesting things going on in the world. And it was a great mixer of people from all walks of life. But that, that certainly for me, that was what I got out of it that was the most valuable thing. Um, you know, the other interesting thing about doing an MBA is a lot of people, a lot of people think it's also about learning to be an entrepreneur and build a business. And I remember one of the professors asking the class, uh, "Who here wants to be an entrepreneur?" And you know, I had already been one, and so I put my hand up. But so did like seventy percent of the class. And and he said, "You're all wrong because you know, when you were given a chance, when you had you know a spare two hundred thousand dollars to spend." You didn't choose to invest it in a startup. You chose to spend it on your own education, which is effectively an insurance policy. So, you know, most of you are generally by nature conservative. And I, look, I think that's a bit tongue in cheek, but um, I don't, I don't think that um, an MBA is a, a lesson in, um, in in how to be an operator. I think it's a lesson in how to learn things from broad, diverse groups of people that you don't always get growing up. You don't, you know. If you don't go through that diverse in education, it, it's a great way to to broaden your, your viewpoint of the world. So, I mean, after you know the the MBA for you, you know, specifically, you know, the the what you actually went through was um, really the opportunity of 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 operating a company that went through an acquisition, which essentially became you know a part of LexisNexis. So, tell us about this journey uh, with this company, with Optimal Decisions Group. I was first employee and became a partner in a business that did pricing technology and insurance. And it was a great group of people. It was, um, you know, it was, you know, PhDs in all sorts of interesting domains, building um, really interesting technology for some of the smartest clients in the world in uh, personalized insurance companies that I still to this day think have some of the most sophisticated approaches to how they deal with analytics and data. Um, but that aside, um, we built out the business. We never took external funding. We we built it through profits. It was a mixture of software and services. And uh, we started to partner up with 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 ChoicePoint, which is a um, was an information services business that later got acquired by LexisNexis and had very deep entrenched footing in the insurance space. And and it just it just made sense for them to um, acquire the business because we were building value added solutions into their very established client base. And so. I inherited a few new teams and um, a few new products and helped with the integration of the company, helped with the product marketing of the broader group that I was a part of and um, and was doing all of this concurrently with doing an MBA as well, which was great to sort of put into practice what I was what I was learning. They say in what is it they say in in in, in uh, driving race cars, race it on a Sunday, sell it on a Monday. It was a little bit the same when I was doing an MBA, learning it on a on a Sunday and, um, you know, learning about how it actually gets applied in practice on a Monday. So that, that was great. And, and my team grew from 30, 40 up to a much, much larger team. And we got to build some great products in the market and, and, um, and make the acquisition work. But I, I did learn through that as much as I still to this day think LexisNexis is one of the, one of the greatest companies on the planet. 
but I'm, I'm generally not a big company guy. You know, all of my time shifted from being working out in the field with customers and solving problems to dealing with all of the necessary components of being in a large company, dealing with budgets and, you know, IT and HR and, and dealing with adding a little bit of value to very large problems as opposed to a lot of value to small problems. And um, I, I, can, I, can do the, I can do the big company thing, uh, but I'm, I'm not sure I have any personal unique advantage in doing the big company thing. I get much more fired up by uh, building something from scratch. So I went through the journey and um, spent a couple of years doing that and, and then started to, uh, through the MBA and through my work at Lexus, learn more about information services more generally and how data flows from company A to company B and what that means in both developed and emerging markets. And I started to get interested in, in uh, alternative data and how that could help organizations such as banks and emerging markets issue credit and open accounts in a more streamlined way. And I started to get sort of interested in this conundrum of my whole career, I've been spending time working with data. Why is it that when there's supposedly an abundance of data that um, even my own team, even inside LexisNexis, we couldn't easily get our hands on on clean data. And, and I still think this is a, a big problem in the world and a big opportunity in the world that getting clean data is is just a fundamental a bottleneck of almost every analytical exercise. So that was my time at LexisNexis. And I guess one, one thing there that, that I think will be interesting to the listeners is how was the process of the acquisition? I mean, how was, because I mean, when you go through the full cycle as an entrepreneur, it gives you full visibility. So how was that process for you guys? It was, a, it was an interesting integration of cultures. And we had a very different way of working to LexisNexis. We had a fast-growing, dynamic culture, um, and LexisNexis was fast-growing and dynamic in some areas, but also much more established and stable in others. And so we had to integrate our teams with the teams of people that are working on a ten-year time horizon instead of a ten-month time horizon. And um, look, that that wasn't always easy. There was nothing magical about it. It was just about getting everybody in the same room and breaking bread together and having a few drinks and getting to know each other and understand each other's perspectives. But there was definitely a quite a, you know, quite a big disconnect at first between the um, acquirer and the, uh, and the company. And that disconnect extended to almost everything, planning processes and rigor, HR, compensation, disconnected payroll structures, go-to-market strategy, agility, uh, uh, database decision making. You know, we had thought pre-acquisition that we were making decisions on the basis of rigorous data, but actually, relative to more established companies, we we were a little bit more kind of basing on a few data points, and and so everybody had to kind of meet in the middle a little bit for that for that to work. Got it. Now, in this case, I mean, you were mentioning that LexisNexis has been one of the uh, most magical you know, big corporations that uh, you've had the pleasure to work with. I mean, what, what, what do you think made them so magical? Yeah, well, they are solving big established problems with technology and data that weren't pie-in-the-sky ideas. They were proven known problems. And like prior to ChoicePoint being around, insurance companies used to fax documents to each other. And then somebody said, hey, instead of faxing these to each other, why don't we put them in a database? And it'll be more efficient. Okay, that makes sense. That saves a lot of money. And th these are very, very big problems in the market. 
that are often neglected. And I think maybe it was a knee-jerk reaction after spending so long in what was kind of advanced analytics domain that I was excited about spending time on, you know, on on boring but impactful problems that actually change people's lives. And I still, to this day, am far more interested in in the picks and shovels, in in the boring, impactful problems. And Lexus was a master at at, at doing that, at at um, letting the clients be experts in their own domain, letting the clients run their own businesses, um, but solving the infrastructure elements of what they do. Um, they also did a lot of great stuff, sort of very inspiring stuff. They still do do a lot of great stuff helping um, governments and um, government agencies with uh, tracking down bad guys. Uh, and um, that's part of part of their business and part of you know, one of the good uses of data in this world is in the event of uh, in the event of crime or money laundering or other activities like that, that um, systems like Lexus can be a critical part of and helping to track down the bad guys and help the good guys. So then, so then tell us at what point you realize that uh, maybe it's time to, to go at it again. And uh, when, when does the missed data come into the picture? What was that incubation process? Well, I mean, there were two things. First of all, my wife got a job in Spain and, and she was very excited about it. And so we were going to move to Spain and, um, you know, I could have, I could have stayed with LexisNexis, but um, that sort of triggered us to think about what do I want to do next? And the other thing that was happening is as much as I love Lexus, it is a big company. And so um, I was missing that innovation streak. I was, I was getting interested in this domain of data access and how to move data from point A to point B, but I found that I just didn't have the bandwidth to do anything about it because everything was incremental. Everything was about executing on what was already decided. And um, I did try to bring a few um, ideas internally, but I had budgets to meet and obligations and all sorts of appropriate things given what I was doing in the company. And, you know, it just made sense to to have another go and to to, to do a startup and do it from ground zero and try to actually move the needle on a few big problems in the world. Got it. So then tell us what happened next. Apart from moving to Spain and having a great time and, putting on some weight and, you know, meeting some interesting people. I think the, the main thing that happened next is I sort of took a step back and and uh, realized I'd gotten a bit soft on you know, technology had evolved a lot since I had been involved in technology. You know, it was no longer desktop software and, and um, deep tech. It was cloud-enabled. It was, you know, Ruby and Python and, and a whole set of technologies that I'd never spent time with before. So I... I had to teach myself to be technical again, and um, that was fun. And I had to uh, teach myself to build a startup, which back then I incorrectly thought was all about building an app, building something that faced consumers. So built some consumer-facing websites to do things that you know, collect, that, that get individuals to do things like apply for credit cards. And you know, it later on, um, we evolved into an enterprise B2B technology company and that is actually has always been in my personal wheelhouse as part of what I've been building. But but I, I spent some time chasing the consumer route, uh, perhaps in hindsight incorrectly. Um, so I you know I, I started to teach myself to be technical, launch a few versions of this, see what worked, see what didn't. Um, didn't really focus on fundraising or anything like that. Just focused on building product and testing it into the market and, and seeing what stuck. So then, in this case, 
I mean, you did spend uh, quite a bit of time in coffee shops, no? And 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 figuring out like what to do, how this would look like. I mean, that sounds a little bit uh, more like the nowadays, no? Of of how the life of an entrepreneur is, no? And how you go about, you know, figuring out what product market fit would look like and how that would uh, work out. So in this case, for you, you know, how what what were like the uh, how did you go about perhaps like building the team around you and and how did you get to product market fit? You know, I was spending a lot of time in coffee shops and I was spending a lot of time building tech, but I was also spending a lot of time just talking to people in the market, flying around the world, going to see, you know, banks in, in Spain and China and the US and lenders and insurers and just kind of getting to know their problems and using some of my personal history and experiences as a consultant uh, to, to get to know what people uh, really cared about, not because I wanted to build a professional services consulting business at all, but just because I wanted to understand the problems they were solving for. So I'd be, you know, sitting in a coffee shop for a big chunk of the day, just learning how to build software and build cloud infrastructure and make it work. But then I'd, other days I'd be getting on planes and just networking my way to go and see smart people at interesting companies and, and, and learn about what they're doing. Now, usually we could do something with our kind of earlier platforms, something marginal and tactical for them. So they would be, they might be trying to launch some new wealth management service or some new uh, digital lending app or some peer-to-peer lender or something. They'd always be trying to do something. And, and usually some aspect of that would involve a, a data integration problem. And so we would help them with them. We would help them with, with that. And that was a way to let the market steer the establishment of product market fit uh later on um as we got more established and hired some people and and um started to launch product real product um it it became much more about surveying the market and finding out what we were doing and weren't doing because now i mean for the people that are listening to really get it what ended up being the business model of the MIS data so our business model is about external data operationalization. Enterprises have incredibly high friction and and um, high cost processes associated with testing and deploying third-party external data. And that could include doing things like verifying a consumer or a business or conducting a credit check or doing an insurance underwriting application or, or, um, or, or something else. Enterprises need to use external data for part of their engagement with their own customers but when they work with when they work with the and there are there are thousands and thousands of really interesting pockets of external data sitting inside organizations such as lexus and experian and equifax but not just the big players there's a whole long tail of external data sources that have exciting compliant accurate data enterprises can't tap into it so we provide a bit of a a one-stop shop model and um you know they're, they're like the disney and web trying to be a little bit like the Netflix. We're all about solving the distribution problem and getting it out into production in a transparent way and, and not trying to build a company that owns the data, but trying to build a company that that helps people harness it. And that's going going really well. And how did you guys go about capitalizing the um, the business? Well, in the early days, as I mentioned, we were we weren't focused on fundraising. We were focused on building things that worked and it was very lean, sometimes in hindsight, maybe even too lean. It wasn't until much later on that I started to hire um, paid employees. It was myself building lots of different iterations of technology and 
then we brought in a co-founder and, and I brought in, um, you know, a couple of, a couple of, um, team members to help accelerate some of the custom stuff we were building. And then we did a small seed round and a, and a series A, we were, I was based in Hong Kong at the time because we had moved there and there was a, a very nascent, uh, venture capital ecosystem in Hong Kong at the time. It's become a lot more established since then, but back then there was, there was, there was a lot of private equity, uh, almost no, you know, of what people would traditionally call venture capital series A seed funding, um, with one or two exceptions. So I managed to meet a couple of the key people and raised a series A and that helped fund the next phase of development and discovery of product market fit. And, um, and then moved back to the States, did a, an extension to the A, then did a B, then did an extension to the B. And there was never one big, um, fundraise really it was more incremental than that for us we were growing all throughout and we were growing um you know more healthily at some times than others um but we were growing all throughout and we were funding to continue operations and accelerate just a little bit just a little bit just a little bit because until more recently there was there was not kind of one moment where we said okay we've discovered product market fit it's time to put the foot on the gas pedal Let's go and raise X dollars. Stop everything else. We're just going to do this one thing. We've we've sort of evolved there throughout time, and I do think that's something that people, when they when they read TechCrunch and read about these companies that take off and find product market fit and raise huge amounts of money, I think it's far more common for people to iterate their way there in a in a more in a more kind of step by step way. So so for example, in this case, you know, when we're thinking about like the pitching and and going out to investors, as, as you were saying, what has been the main difference that you've seen from raising money, you know, in 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 the U.S. versus raising money, for example, in Australia? Well, uh, we we've actually never raised money in Australia until just last year, and and that's been very interesting. Uh, but I did raise some money in in Asia, and also then later on in the States and in the U.K. and Look, there are some things that are common. Everybody everywhere wants growth and product market fit and they want a great team and and um that's common. I did have some very you know, like like every entrepreneur, you know, we had a lot more people say no to us than yes, and we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of pitches that people didn't understand the model, they didn't see us having enough traction, they had some concerns about how it was going to evolve and uh, but what was interesting is in in the States there's you have to tailor your pitch to the person that you're speaking to. And, and the US VCs definitely expect a very ambitious plan. Uh, and they expect the the big pitch, the, you know, this is going to be a multi-billion dollar enterprise. This is why, here's how I'm going to take on the world. And in most situations, most VCs, if you, if you really, you know, ask them, they, they haircut those numbers so much. They, they see it as, uh, you know, as a big, bold, ambitious plan, very, very hard to hit. Most companies don't hit their numbers, but they want to hear the big pitch anyway. Um, they don't want to hear equivocating companies that come in and say, well, this doesn't work, this doesn't work. And, and so that was one of the things that I learned in the early days is, um, you know, I had in, um, you know, when I, when I engage VCs in, in other parts of the world outside the US, there was a lot more kind of conversation about what doesn't work. And, when I had those conversations in the U.S., again, not to overly generalize because every VC is different, but in the U.S., when I had too much of a conversation about what doesn't work versus what is working, you know, you would you would talk yourself out of a deal. 
and and the more you talk and the more you explore and the more you discuss you know they would uh you know get get concerned and that doesn't mean that you know for a second we ever hid anything um uh you know you don't hide things everything gets disclosed during diligence but it's more around the narrative and the pitch and synthesizing what you're going to do in, in crisp sound bites but that was one difference that i observed personally because how much how much capital have you guys raised today mark for the business uh we raised about 60 million and that's been through a series of series a series b transactions and then more recently uh middle of last year we raised a 25 million dollar uh, pre-ipo uh, round on a pathway to doing a public listing in australia got it and and what have you seen the in terms of expectations i mean how have you seen those transform or change from one financing cycle to another yeah look uh well this is one area that i think what what entrepreneurs do read about is is fairly accurate there is a there is an evolution of of what investors quite rightly expect to see at different gear changes in the company they you know in the early seed series a stage they really want to see successful customers product market fit uh and and proof that the as one of my board members always um used to say that the dogs will eat the dog food like this this product actually works and people care about it and and they care less about revenue and and um and costs and, and then in, in sort of series a series b they care about um uh the extension of that the ability to predictably deliver growth and that the dogs won't just eat the dog food but they will continue to eat the dog food so they care a lot about retention and growth within customer accounts and then you know as you get into sort of later stages then it, they start to care not only about that but also about forecastability and predictability and operational processes and metrics so becoming a, a company that is more than just any one group of people and is more than just any one group of customers but is a predictable machine you know the, the goal for any scaling company and I, i believe this is no matter how it's financed even if, whether it's vc or pe backed or not is that it has to be able to build a predictable machine you pour pour investment capital in the top and you get predictable outcomes out the bottom and um and that's how it's evolved through the through the cycle now in your case imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of the missed data is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, look, uh, data is accessible with zero marginal costs, with very high compliance, is ubiquitous and is used for good purposes all around the world. Uh, there are a few key large incumbent platforms out there in the case of the bureaus but data is so far away from being at people's fingertips and it's this great undelivered promise that we all hear about that data is going to be everywhere and is going to change the world but if you ask almost anyone in almost any enterprise not just the regulated ones not just the sensitive data but almost any enterprise in the world they all kind of in unison complain that geez, I can't get any data around here. I don't know what's actually happening in my own business, let alone out in the outside world. So if I could wake up tomorrow and whether it's demissed or not, and and enterprises could have a rich understanding of what's happening around them with their customers. And then in turn, they build on top of that and they deliver innovative products, they deliver economic growth, they deliver great outcomes for the world. Then 
that would be what I would want to see. Uh, and it's very much the components are very much available now. The, the technology maturity around data and the um, frameworks for governance are, are there, but it hasn't been pulled together in a way that is what anyone would call what is it? Circuit cities, the easy button. Where's the easy button for for data? It's if anything, it's kind of drifting in the other direction as the data gets more and more complicated. It's getting more and more complicated to tap into data and the basis of competition is shifting towards data because over the maturity of the tools that use data that's actually now come up the curve and so everybody's got great ai technology and great cloud infrastructure and great data warehouse infrastructure but but nobody has clean data nobody has solved that problem got it now imagine i put you into a time machine and i take you back in time to that moment where you know, you were coming out of Colombia, you were thinking about what's next, uh, and perhaps, you know, like building a business. If you had the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self and giving that younger, giving that younger Mark one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Uh, more narrow niche focus. Um, you know, Amazon sold books before they sold everything. And, you know, I think in, in hindsight, had we just done one thing, for one type of customer in one country for not much money and just done that, you know, it would have, would have probably been faster. It might, might've been less fun, but it would have been faster to build real impact in the world. And maybe that would have meant not having lofty pitch conversations with venture capitalists and doing even more through a bootstrap mechanism. But, you know, I look at some of the stuff we've done with clients successfully today, reducing fraud and automating verification for people originating credit cards in India and other kind of countries in Southeast Asia. And, and they're really great solutions. And each one of those specific problems is, is just one business entirely by itself before you generalize in, into a platform. So, you know, my, my younger self, I think, you know, could have been more focused on, on, uh, on a narrower set of business problems, which is, you know, again, it, it's sort of at odds with what the VCs want to hear. The VCs want to hear how you're building this platform that isn't restricted even to any one vertical. Like, you know, we don't just serve banks, we serve insurers, we serve healthcare, we serve this, we serve that. And now as DMIST has matured, we do serve lots of different verticals. But I think I was naive to think that we could serve those from day one. Got it. Now, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them, Mark, to reach out and say hi? Well, they can reach out and and um, and say hi to our company via our website. There's a you know there's a, a a contact us form, and if they want to reach out and say hi to me, they're welcome to ping me on LinkedIn and say hi. I've got a lot of things going on, but um, but uh, you know if there's if there's any way I can be helpful and point people in the right direction, you know, and give back. Um, I'm a big fan that being an entrepreneur is is an incredibly rewarding journey, incredibly challenging journey, and um, allows you to have a real impact in the world and, and have fun along the way. Amazing. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker show today. Thanks, Alejandro. Great to connect. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, 
you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.